Book 18, Chapters 1-11 through 11 of The City of God This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo, Book 18 Chapter 1 I promise to write of the rise, progress, and appointed end of the two cities, one of which is God's, the other this world's, in which, so far as mankind is concerned, the former is now a stranger. But first of all I undertook, so far as his grace should enable me, to refute the enemies of the city of God, who prefer their gods to Christ its founder, and fiercely hate Christians with the most deadly malice. And this I have done in the first ten books. Then, as regards my threefold promise which I have just mentioned, I have treated distinctly, in the four books which follow the tenth, of the rise of both cities. After that I have proceeded from the first man down to the flood in one book, which is the fifteenth of this work, and from that again down to Abraham our work has followed both in chronological order. From the patriarch Abraham down to the time of the Israelite kings, at which we close our sixteenth book, and thence down to the advent of Christ himself in the flesh, to which period the seventeenth book reaches, the city of God appears from my way of writing to have run its course alone, whereas it did not run its course alone in this age, for both cities, in their course amid mankind, certainly experienced checkered times together just as from the beginning." But I did this in order that, first of all, from the time when the promises of God began to be more clear, down to the virgin birth of him in whom those things promised from the first were to be fulfilled, the course of that city which is God's might be made more distinctly apparent, without interpolation of foreign matter from the history of the other city, although down to the revelation of the new covenant it ran its course not in light but in shadow." Now, therefore, I think fit to do what I passed by, and show, so far as seems necessary, how that other city ran its course from the times of Abraham, so that attentive readers may compare the two. CHAPTER Two. The society of mortals spread abroad through the earth everywhere, and in the most diverse places, although bound together by a certain fellowship of our common nature, is yet for the most part divided against itself, and the strongest oppress the others, because all follow after their own interests and lusts, while what is longed for either suffices for none, or not for all, because it is not the very thing. For the vanquished succumb to the victorious, preferring any sort of peace and safety to freedom itself, so that they who chose to die rather than be slaves have been greatly wondered at. For in almost all nations the very voice of nature somehow proclaims that those who happen to be the conquered should choose rather to be subject to their conquerors than to be killed by all kinds of warlike destruction. This does not take place without the providence of God, in whose power it lies that any one either subdues or is subdued in war, that some are endowed with kingdoms, others made subject to kings. 
Now among the very many kingdoms of the earth into which, by earthly interest or lust, society is divided, which we call by the general name of the city of this world, we see that two, settled and kept distinct from each other both in time and place, have grown far more famous than the rest, first that of the Assyrians, then that of the Romans. First came the one, then the other. The former arose in the east, and immediately on its close the latter in the west. I may speak of other kingdoms and other kings as appendages of these. Ninus, then, who succeeded his father Belus, the first king of Assyria, was already the second king of that kingdom when Abraham was born in the land of the Chaldees. There was also at that time a very small kingdom of Sicyon, with which, as from an ancient date, that most universally learned man Marcus Varro begins, in writing of the Roman race. For from these kings of Sicyon he passes to the Athenians, from them to the Latins, and from these to the Romans. Yet very little is related about these kingdoms before the foundation of Rome in comparison with that of Assyria. For although even Sallust, the Roman historian, admits that the Athenians were very famous in Greece, yet he thinks they were greater in fame than in fact. For in speaking of them, he says, The deeds of the Athenians, as I think, were very great and magnificent, but yet somewhat less than reported by fame. But because writers of great genius arose among them, the deeds of the Athenians were celebrated throughout the world as very great. Thus the virtue of those who did them was held to be as great as men of transcendent genius could represent it to be by the power of laudatory words. This city also derived no small glory from literature and philosophy, the study of which chiefly flourished there. But as regards empire, none in the earliest times was greater than the Assyrian, or so widely extended. For when Ninus, the son of Belus, was king, he is reported to have subdued the whole of Asia, even to the boundaries of Libya, which as to number is called the third part, but as to size is found to be the half of the whole world. The Indians in the eastern regions were the only people over whom he did not reign. But after his death, Semiramis, his wife, made war on them. Thus it came to pass that all the people and kings in those countries were subject to the kingdom and authority of the Assyrians, and did whatever they were commanded. Now Abraham was born in that kingdom among the Chaldees in the time of Ninus. But since Grecian affairs are much better known to us than Assyrian, and those who have diligently investigated the antiquity of the Roman nation's origin have followed the order of time through the Greeks to the Latins, and from them to the Romans, who themselves are Latins, we ought on this account, where it is needful, to mention the Assyrian kings, that it may appear how Babylon, like a first Rome, ran its course along with the city of God, which is a stranger in this world." But the things proper for insertion in this work in comparing the two cities, that is, the earthly and heavenly, ought to be taken mostly from the Greek and Latin kingdoms, where Rome herself is like a second Babylon. At Abraham's birth, then, the second kings of Assyria and Sicyon, respectively, were Ninus and Europe's, the first having been Belus and Ajalius. But when God promised Abraham, on his departure from Babylonia, that he should become a great nation, and that in his seed all nations of the earth should be blessed, the Assyrians had their seventh king, the Sicyons their fifth. 
For the son of Ninus reigned among them after his mother Semiramis, who is said to have been put to death by him for attempting to defile him by incestuously lying with him. Some think that she founded Babylon, and indeed she may have founded it anew. But we have told in the sixteenth book when or by whom it was founded. Now the son of Ninus and Semiramis, who succeeded his mother in the kingdom, is also called Ninus by some, but by others Nineus, a patronymic word. Telexian then held the kingdom of the Sicyons. In his reign times were quiet and joyful to such a degree that after his death they worshipped him as a god by offering sacrifices and by celebrating games, which are said to have been first instituted on this occasion. CHAPTER three. In his times also, by the promise of God, Isaac, the son of Abraham, was born to his father, when he was a hundred years old, of Sarah his wife, who, being barren and old, had already lost hope of issue. Aurelius was then the fifth king of the Assyrians. To Isaac himself, in his sixtieth year, were born twin sons, Esau and Jacob, whom Rebekah his wife bore to him, their grandfather Abraham, who died on completing a hundred and seventy years, being still alive, and reckoning his hundred and sixtieth year. At that time there reigned as the seventh kings, among the Assyrians, that more ancient Xerxes, who was also called Belaeus, and among the Sicyons, Thuriacus, or, as some write his name, Therimachus. The kingdom of Argus, in which Inachus first reigned, arose in the time of Abraham's grandchildren. And I must not omit what Varro relates, that the Sicyons were also wont to sacrifice at the tomb of their seventh king Thuriacus. In the reign of Armamitres in Assyria, and Leucippus in Sicyon as the eighth kings, and of Inachus as the first in Argus, God spoke to Isaac, and promised the same two things to him as to his father, namely the land of Canaan to his seed, and the blessing of all nations in his seed. These same things were promised to his son, Abraham's grandson, who was at first called Jacob, afterwards Israel, when Belicus was the ninth king of Syria, and Phoranaeus, the son of Inachus, reigned as the second king of Argus, Leucippus still continuing king of Sicyon. In those times, under the Argive king Phoranaeus, Greece was made more famous by the institution of certain laws and judges. On the death of Phoranaeus, his younger brother Phagoas built a temple at his tomb, in which he was worshipped as God, and oxen were sacrificed to him. I believe they thought him worthy of so great honour, because in his part of the kingdom, for their father had divided his territories between them, in which they reigned during his life, he had founded chapels for the worship of the gods, and had taught them to measure time by months and years, and to that extent to keep count and reckoning of events. Men still uncultivated, admiring him for these novelties, either fancied he was, or resolved that he should be made a god after his death. Io also is said to have been the daughter of Inachus, who was afterwards called Isis, when she was worshipped in Egypt as a great goddess, although others write that she came as a queen out of Ethiopia, and because she ruled extensively and justly, and instituted for her subjects letters and many useful things, such divine honour was given her there after she died, that if any one said she had been human, he was charged with a capital crime. CHAPTER Four. 
In the reign of Belaus, the ninth king of Assyria, and Mesopus, the eighth of Sicyon, who is said by some to have been also called Cephisus, if indeed the same man had both names, and those who put the other name in their writings have not rather confounded him with another man, while Apis was third king of Argus, Isaac died a hundred and eighty years old, and left his twin sons a hundred and twenty years old. Jacob, the younger of these, belonged to the city of God about which we write, the elder being wholly rejected, and had twelve sons, one of whom, called Joseph, was sold by his brothers to merchants going down to Egypt, while his grandfather Isaac was still alive. But when he was thirty years of age, Joseph stood before Pharaoh, being exalted out of the humiliation he endured, because, in divinely interpreting the king's dreams, he foretold that there would be seven years of plenty, the very rich abundance of which would be consumed by seven other years of famine that should follow. On this account the king made him ruler over Egypt, liberating him from prison, into which he had been thrown for keeping his chastity intact, for he bravely preserved it from his mistress, who wickedly loved him, and told lies to his weakly credulous master, and did not consent to commit adultery with her, but fled from her, leaving his garment in her hands when she laid hold of him. In the second of the seven years of famine, Jacob came down into Egypt to his son with all he had, being a hundred and thirty years old, as he himself said in answer to the king's question. Joseph was then thirty-nine, if we add seven years of plenty and two of famine to the thirty he reckoned when honoured by the king. CHAPTER five. In these times Apis, king of Argus, crossed over into Egypt in ships, and, on dying there, was made Serapis, the chief god of all the Egyptians. Now Varro gives this very ready reason why, after his death, he was called not Apis, but Serapis. The ark in which he was placed when dead, which every one now calls a sarcophagus, was then called in Greek Soros, and they began to worship him when buried in it before his temple was built. And from Soros and Apis he was called first Sorosapis, or Sorapis, and then Serapis, by changing a letter, as easily happens. It was decreed regarding him also that whoever should say he had been a man should be capitally punished. And since in every temple where Isis and Serapis were worshipped, there was also an image which, with finger pressed on the lips, seemed to warn men to keep silence, Varro thinks this signifies that it should be kept secret that they had been human. But that bull which, with wonderful folly, deluded Egypt, nourished with abundant delicacies in honour of him, was not called Serapis, but Apis, because they worshipped him alive without a sarcophagus. On the death of that bull, when they sought and found a calf of the same colour, that is, similarly marked with certain white spots, they believed it was something miraculous and divinely provided for them. Yet it was no great thing for the demons, in order to deceive them, to show to a cow, when she was conceiving and pregnant, the image of such a bull, which she alone could see, and by it attract the breeding passion of the mother, so that it might appear in a bodily shape in her young, just as Jacob so managed with the spotted broads that the sheep and goats were born spotted. For what men can do with real colours and substances, the demons can very easily do by showing unreal forms to breeding animals. CHAPTER six. Apis, then, who died in Egypt, was not the king of Egypt, but of Argus. 
he was succeeded by his son Argus, from whose name the land was called Argos, and the people Argives, for under the earlier kings neither the place nor the nation as yet had this name. While he then reigned over Argos, and Aratus over Sicyon, and Belaus still remained king of Assyria, Jacob died in Egypt a hundred and forty-seven years old, after he had, when dying, blessed his sons and his grandsons by Joseph, and prophesied most plainly of Christ, saying in the blessing of Judah, A prince shall not fail out of Judah, nor a leader from his thighs, until those things come which are laid up for him, and he is the expectation of the nations. In the reign of Argus Greece began to use fruits, and to have crops of corn in cultivated fields, the seed having been brought from other countries. Argus also began to be accounted a god after his death, and was honoured with the temple and sacrifices. This honour was conferred in his reign, before being given to him, on a private individual for being the first to yoke oxen in the plough. This was one Homagyrus, who was struck by lightning. Chapter 7. In the reign of Mamatus, the twelfth king of Assyria, and Plemnaeus, the eleventh of Sicyon, while Argus still reigned over the Argives, Joseph died in Egypt a hundred and ten years old. After his death, the people of God, increasing wonderfully, remained in Egypt a hundred and forty-five years, in tranquillity at first, until those who knew Joseph were dead. Afterward, through envy of their increase, and the suspicion that they would at length gain their freedom, they were oppressed with persecutions and the labours of intolerable servitude, amid which, however, they still grew, being multiplied with God-given fertility. During this period the same kingdoms continued in Assyria and Greece. Chapter 8 when Saphrus reigned as the fourteenth king of Assyria, and Orthopolis as the twelfth of Sicyon, and Chryasus as the fifth of Argus, Moses was born in Egypt, by whom the people of God were liberated from the Egyptian slavery, in which they behooved to be thus tried, that they might desire the help of their Creator. Some have thought that Prometheus lived during the reign of the kings now named. He is reported to have formed men out of clay, because he was esteemed the best teacher of wisdom, yet it does not appear what wise men there were in his days. His brother Atlas is said to have been a great astrologer, and this gave occasion for the fable that he held up the sky, although the vulgar opinion about his holding up the sky appears rather to have been suggested by a high mountain named after him. Indeed, from those times many other fabulous things began to be invented in Greece, yet down to Cecrops king of Athens, in whose reign that city received its name, and in whose reign God brought his people out of Egypt by Moses, only a few dead heroes are reported to have been deified according to the vain superstition of the Greeks. Among these were Melantimes, the wife of King Chryasus, and Phorbus their son, who succeeded his father as sixth king of the Argives, and Iasus, son of Triopus, their seventh king, and their ninth king, Sthenelus, or Sthenelaus, or Sthenelus, for his name is given differently by different authors. In those times also Mercury, the grandson of Atlas by his daughter Maia, is said to have lived according to the common report in books. He was famous for his skill in many arts, and taught them to men, for which they resolved to make him, and even believed that he deserved to be a god after death. 
Hercules is said to have been later, yet belonging to the same period, although some, whom I think mistaken, assign him an earlier date than Mercury. But at whatever time they were born, it is agreed among grave historians, who have committed these ancient things to writing, that both were men, and that they merited divine honours for mortals, because they conferred on them many benefits to make this life more pleasant to them. Minerva was far more ancient than these, for she is reported to have appeared in virgin age in the times of Augages at the lake called Triton, from which she is also styled Tritonia, the inventress truly of many works, and the more readily believed to be a goddess because her origin was so little known. For what is sung about her having sprung from the head of Jupiter belongs to the region of poetry and fable, and not to that of history and real fact and historical writers are not agreed when Augages flourished, in whose time also a great flood occurred, not that greatest one from which no man escaped except those who could get into the ark, for neither Greek nor Latin history knew of it, yet a greater flood than that which happened afterward in Deucalion's time. For Varro begins the book I have already mentioned at this date, and does not propose to himself, as the starting point from which he may arrive at Roman affairs, anything more ancient than the flood of Augages, that is, which happened in the time of Augages. Now our writers of chronicles, first Eusebius and afterwards Jerome, who entirely follow some earlier historians in this opinion, relate that the flood of Augages happened more than three hundred years after, during the reign of Foronaeus, the second king of Argos. But whenever he may have lived, Minerva was already worshipped as a goddess when Cecrops reigned in Athens, in whose reign the city itself is reported to have been rebuilt or founded. Chapter 9. Athens certainly derived its name from Minerva, who in Greek is called Athena, and Varro points out the following reason why it was so called. When an olive tree suddenly appeared there, and water burst forth in another place, these prodigies moved the king to send to the Delphic Apollo to inquire what they meant and what he should do. He answered that the olive signified Minerva, the water Neptune, and that the citizens had it in their power to name their city as they chose, after either of these two gods whose signs these were. On receiving this oracle, Cecrops convoked all the citizens of either sex to give their vote, for it was then the custom in those parts for the women also to take part in public deliberations. When the multitude was consulted, the men gave their votes for Neptune, the women for Minerva, and as the women had a majority of one, Minerva conquered. Then Neptune, being enraged, laid waste the lands of the Athenians by casting up the waves of the sea, for the demons have no difficulty in scattering any waters more widely. The same authority said that to appease his wrath the women should be visited by the Athenians with a threefold punishment, that they should no longer have any vote, that none of their children should be named after their mothers, and that no one should call them Athenians. Thus that city, the mother and nurse of liberal doctrines, and of so many and so great philosophers, than whom Greece had nothing more famous and noble, by the mockery of demons about the strife of their gods, a male and female, and from the victory of the female one through the women, received the name of Athens, and on being damaged by the vanquished god, was compelled to punish the very victory of the victress, fearing the waters of Neptune more than the arms of Minerva. 
for in the women who were thus punished minerva who had conquered was conquered too and could not even help her voters so far that although the right of voting was henceforth lost and the mothers could not give their names to the children they might at least be allowed to be called athenians and to merit the name of that goddess whom they had made victorious over a male god by giving her their votes what and how much could be said about this if we had not to hasten to other things in our discourse is obvious chapter ten marcus varro however is not willing to credit lying fables against the gods lest he should find something dishonouring to their majesty and therefore he will not admit that the areopagus the place where the apostle paul disputed with the athenians got this name because mars who in greek is called ares when he was charged with the crime of homicide and was judged by twelve gods in that field was acquitted by the sentence of six because it was the custom when the votes were equal to acquit rather than condemn against this opinion which is much most widely published he tries from the notices of obscure books to support another reason for this name lest the athenians should be thought to have called it areopagus from the words mars and field as if it were the field of mars to the dishonour of the gods forsooth from whom he thinks lawsuits and judgments far removed and he asserts that this which is said about mars is not less false than what is said about the three goddesses to wit juno minerva and venus whose contest for the palm of beauty before paris is judge in order to obtain the golden apple is not only related but is celebrated in songs and dances amid the applause of the theatres in plays meant to please the gods who take pleasure in these crimes of their own whether real or fabled varro does not believe these things because they are incompatible with the nature of the gods and of morality and yet in giving not a fabulous but a historic reason for the name of athens he inserts in his books the strife between neptune and minerva as to whose name should be given to that city which was so great that when they contended by the display of prodigies even apollo dared not judge between them when consulted but in order to end the strife of the gods just as jupiter sent the three goddesses we have named to paris so he sent them to men when minerva won by the vote and yet was defeated by the punishment of her own voters for she was unable to confer the title of athenians on the women who were her friends although she could impose it on the men who were her opponents in these times when Cronaeus reigned at athens as the successor of cecrops as varro writes but according to our eusebius and jerome while cecrops himself still remained the flood occurred which is called deucalion's because it occurred chiefly in those parts of the earth in which he reigned but this flood did not at all reach egypt or its vicinity chapter eleven moses led the people out of egypt in the last time of cecrops king of athens when ascatides reigned in assyria marathus and sicyon triopus and argus and having led forth the people he gave them at mount sinai the law he received from god which is called the old testament because it has earthly promises and because through jesus christ there was to be a new testament in which the kingdom of heaven should be promised for the same order behooved to be observed in this as is observed in each man who prospers in god according to the saying of the apostle that is not first which is spiritual but that which is natural since as he says and that truly the first man of the earth is earthly the second man from heaven is heavenly
Now Moses ruled the people for forty years in the wilderness, and died a hundred and twenty years old, after he had prophesied of Christ by the types of carnal observances, in the tabernacle, priesthood, and sacrifices, and many other mystic ordinances. Joshua, the son of Nun, succeeded Moses, and settled in the land of promise the people he had brought in, having by divine authority conquered the people by whom it was formerly possessed. He also died after ruling the people twenty-seven years after the death of Moses, when Amatus reigned in Assyria as the eighteenth king, Corachus as the sixteenth in Sicyon, Danaeus as the tenth in Argus, Erichthonius as the fourth in Athens. End of Book 18, Chapters 1 through 11. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org.